And while the massacre in Tulsa is often described as a riot started by a white mob, just how organized the attack was and to what extent the government helped is still being debated today. Tulsa's police department deputized white residents and helped to arm them. Witnesses also reported seeing the neighborhood bombed from the air. So let's go to Leah Wright-Rigor, ABC News contributor and associate professor at Brandeis University, to help us separate some of the fact from fiction. Leah, thanks for being here. You know, from what we know at this point, how did this attack come together? And what role did the government and law enforcement play in it? So I think one of the things that we know kind of in the standard story that is emerging about the Tulsa massacre is this idea that there was some kind of interaction between a black man and a white woman. However, what we also know is that the Tulsa area and white residents and white mobs in Tulsa had a long history of really terrorizing black residents in that environment, engaging in things like property theft, lynching, over-policing, harassment, violence, things of this nature. So when we see an explosion happen in 1921 over this two and a half day period, it's not unexpected. On top of that, what we also know is that this coverage, this idea of some kind of uh, improper interaction between a black man and a white woman is also cover for this idea of uh, uh, suppressing black independence and autonomy and black capital, right, and plundering black capital. So what we're seeing with the Tulsa massacre and what we saw with the Tulsa massacre is the emergence of really this kind of high point of violence that is designed to reassert authority over the black residents of Tulsa for who had been showing too much power, too much autonomy, and too much independence during the period. Now, this was one of the worst incidents of racial violence in American history, but it was largely ignored in history classes, or at the very least, some key parts of the story were left out. So why is that, and is it being taught now? So one of the things that we know is that Tulsa is not the only incident of wide, wild uh, and disorder uh, amongst mob violence. There are dozens, if not hundreds of incidents that precede Tulsa and then follow after it. But we, what we also know is that there is a widespread effort to cover up what happens in Tulsa. And it's not just by the residents, the white residents of Tulsa, who essentially disappear the people, uh, the black residents of uh, Tulsa. This is actually why we don't have an accurate number of the amount of people that died during or were murdered during the Tulsa incident, because people go to great lengths to cover it up. We also know that the media chooses not to tell the story of Tulsa, particularly mainstream media. So we know that the black press keeps this alive. Black communities keep the story of Tulsa and other areas like it alive. They teach it by passing it down through oral history. Black newspapers cover this at length right on through the present. But mainstream media sources choose to erase it because it's much more difficult, I think, and much more complex to actually address it rather than just disappear it altogether. It makes it much easier to move on and to say that things like institutional racism, systemic racism, mob violence don't actually exist when they continue to exist on and on. It's just that the media doesn't cover it. Uh, so, Leah, no one was ever held accountable for this massacre. And now, as we heard, there are discussions about reparations for survivors and their descendants. So what might those reparations look like? Well, I think the first thing, and I, you know, earlier in the program, you guys talked about this, and I think this is exactly right. There has to be a full accounting 
of what happened. And what we do know is that a number of sources, including black media sources, kept really good records in oral histories of what happened at the time. We even know that the National Archives kept records through the Red Cross. This is the first incident, the first kind of non-natural disaster that the Red Cross intervenes in and provides support for during that moment. So we need a full accounting of how much property was lost, how much property was seized. How did the state and local government and police participate in the violence and in the theft of land and property and wealth. So we need a full accounting of that. And from there, we can begin to calculate what a number might look like. I've heard people talking about this $100 million uh, number. What we actually know is that the number, right, when we, we think about the compounded harm that is done from the Tulsa incident and other incidents like that, is much greater than that. So we do have to start thinking any kind of reconciliation is going to have to uh, account for Right, the loss of wealth, the loss of property, the loss of independence, the loss of lives. That's where we have to begin. All right, Leah Wright Rigger, thank you for joining us as always. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Carefree Black Nerd Podcast. This is a conversation about representation in comics and related media. I am your host, Rain Coleman, and today we will be discussing the Tulsa Race Massacre. Use the hashtag CBNPod when you're listening to this episode. Uh, my Twitter handle is CarefreeBlurred, CarefreeBlackNerd everywhere else. And if you want to email me, CarefreeBlackNerd at gmail.com. So for this episode, I have been, okay, full disclosure, I've been attempting to record this episode for about the past two weeks now. The subject matter is heavy to say the least, but with the state of the world and the state of the country in which I live, United States of America, um, and the history that that we have, this was harder than I thought it would have been. We are just past the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, May 31st to June 1st is the um, are the dates, and it was in 1921. This is something that... Uh, Tulsa Race Massacre, formerly coined as the Tulsa Race Riots... Um, while I'm going over some of the background and information about the race massacre, I'm. It'll be clear as to why that original name was so problematic. Um, some of you may not be aware of the Tulsa race massacre. Some of you may. There may be some details that I might not get into in detail. There may be some that I may miss. Um, if you are aware of any issues or you have any more to add to the conversation, I beg of you to please use that hashtag, tweet me directly, or even email me. Um, I say that a lot on these episodes, and you know I do welcome the conversation, but this one in particular, because this being a true event, this isn't a fictional Marvel or DC event, this is a true event, something that actually happened. Um, 
And this is something that I was not made aware of growing up. This is something that I learned as an adult. Um, I just want to, and that's part of my hesitation with even getting into the the history, but again, coming on the centennial anniversary of this horrific event, and because this event has been portrayed in some of the media that we consume, i.e. Lovecraft Country, which I'll link that episode of, include um, that touched on the Tulsa Race Massacre, as well as Watchmen, and Watchmen is something I'm slowly powering through. Um, but whenever I do have an episode of Watchmen, I'll actually link that as well. And mm, I don't know. So all of that out the way or all of that in mind, this is honestly, it was very hard for me. Um, so just keep that in mind while going over this information. And please, by all means, share any um information history articles videos personal experience family members share any and all of that with me carefreeblacknerd@gmail.com um or do it right on twitter uh carefreeblurred i'd appreciate it so the Tulsa race massacre is an event that happened in the Greenwood district in Tulsa Oklahoma this was on May 31st, and it went on to June 1st of 1921. The targeted persons were, of course, black residents. Um, their businesses, homes, schools, churches, municipal buildings, over a 40-square block area. Now, with preparing for the explanation of the Tulsa Race Massacre, I read a few things, I looked at a few articles, a few blog posts, um, and I looked at a few videos and then some of the kind of documentaries, one of which being Blood on Black Wall Street, The Legacy of the Tulsa Race Massacre. That was a really, oh my God, it, that, was, that was one of the uh, pieces of media that just really drove home or really highlighted or I don't know the after effects of the Tulsa race massacre. There's a few others and I'll link those as well. There is a, in the, I'm sorry, the blood on black wall street, the legacy of the Tulsa race massacre was an NBC news, uh, documentary docuseries or documentary rather. And the host, uh, shout out to the host Tremaine Lee. Um, he did a really good job. And then we have, um, the Tulsa burning, the 1921 race massacre, and this is on the History Channel. This is their 92Y. I think that's the, either their YouTube channel or that's the name of a series. Um, it's the History Channel's Tulsa burning, uh, creators in conversation. That was a discussion that I couldn't get through. Um, there are a few other things. I know there is one, I believe, on Hulu, and I think there's one on Prime. But I'll try to link as many YouTube videos, docu-series, as many things as possible in the show notes. And, you know, you can kind of go from there. Now, with the Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, I mentioned before this is something that I was not taught in school. This is not something that I learned about until I became an adult. And this is something that just 
is quintessential American history. Just from the way it was handled, for the things that happened, from the personal accounts, like this is American history. This is America. My God. Um, so the, some of the weapons that were used were guns, explosives, um, intentionally set fires, a lot of arson, incendiary devices dropped from airplanes. And I, I really want you guys, if you, like, of course, watch these resources that I'll leave in the show notes. But also, though it is a fictional show, I think that what everything that I watched that is true about the Tulsa race massacre and then revisiting that Lovecraft country episode, though it is one piece of a larger series, a lot of that I feel kind of drives home the same issues. Um, so I would, I would say even through watching all of this, like revisit that episode, um, cause there are parts of it that, you know, outside of the storyline stuff, like the actual riots, like watching all of that, it's a more cinematic, of course, like stylized view, but I just, I think that it's not, it wouldn't do you any harm to get the real story, get some of that, um, that Misha Green and company put into that particular episode, I, I just think it would, um, I think it would, it would help. It would help. So the deaths, um, the total dead and displaced are of course unknown because this was a massacre. Jesus. So what they have listed is uh, 36 total, 26 black and 10 white dead. This is the 1921 records, 150 to 200 black and 50 white dead. This is a 1921 estimate by WF white, um, Walter Francis Wright, a uh, African-American civil rights activist uh, who led the NAACP. And then we have 39 confirmed, 75 to 100 to 150 to 300 estimated. And this is the 2001 commission um, reports. Injured, 800 plus, 183 serious injuries. The exact number, of course, is unknown. And the perpetrators were white Americans, a white American mob. I, (laughs) so um, a little bit of kind of context. In 1921, Oklahoma had a racially, socially, politically tense atmosphere as like, who didn't, you know, uh, in America. The territory of the northern Oklahoma had been established for the settlement of Native Americans from the southeast. Some of them owned slaves, so we'll leave that alone. Other areas had received settlers from the south whose family had been slaveholders before the Civil War. Oklahoma was admitted as a state back in November 16th of 1907, and this newly created state legislator um, passed Jim Crow laws. That's pretty much it. Racial segregation, Jim Crow laws. Now, um, that was its first order of business. So it's like setting the tone for where we're going. You already know how ridiculous things were back then. Um, Now, the 1907 Oklahoma Constitution did not call for strict segregation, but delegates feared that they should include those restrictions. Um, President Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, would veto the document. But the first law passed by this legislator 
was a segregated all rail travel and voter registration rules um, disenfranchised most black Americans like we've seen time and time again, even as recently as these last few elections in these 2000s, in the years 2000s. Um, these were meant to um, bar these people from serving on juries or in local office, these people being black people. These laws were enforced until after the passage of the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, many major cities passed additional restrictions. Now, on August 4th, of 1916, Tulsa passed an ordinance that mandated residential segregation by forbidding black or white people from residing on any block where three-fourths or more of the residents were a member of the other race. That's interesting. Um, because I'm thinking, when you say that, and this is where I'll just kind of call to action to you guys, because when you say that as a white person, you cannot reside anywhere where three-fourths of the makeup is black and vice versa. What is the racial makeup of the other fourth? Like, is it white? Is it Native American? Is it Like, I wonder, because a lot of times in American history, though this is the most dominant and rampant issue is between blacks and whites, there are other races existing in America. You know, and there were back in the day, so to speak. So I wonder what is that? So as a white person who's in that one fourth or a black person in that one fourth, or if the, is that even the makeup of the other fourth, if I'm making any sense? Um, yeah. So, okay. Now, although the United States Supreme Court declared uh, this ordinance as unconstitutional the following year, so in 1917, um, Tulsa and many other cities continued to establish and enforce segregation for the next uh, three decades or so. <sighs> many servicemen returned to Tulsa following the end of the First World War in 1918 as they tried to re-enter the labor market. Social tensions, anti-black sentiment created... <sighs> I'm sorry, guys. So <clears throat> this increase in cities where job competition was high. Northeast Oklahoma was an economic slump that increased the unemployment. Now, the American Civil War, which ended in 1865, was still living in memory. Civil rights for African-Americans were lacking and the Ku Klux Klan was resurgent. Um, since 1915, the Ku Klux Klan had been growing in urban chapters across the country. Its first significance appeared in Oklahoma. And this occurred on August 12th of 1921. By the end of 1921, 3,200 of Tulsa's 7,200 residents were Klan members, according to this, you know, one estimate. In the early 20th century, lynchings were common in Oklahoma as part of a continuing effort to assert and maintain white supremacy. By 1921, at least 31 people, mostly men and boys, had been lynched in the newly formed state. 26 were black. Now, at the same time, black veterans pushed to have their civil rights enforced, believing that they had earned their full citizenship by military service, which, like, America's fucked up already. But, ugh, like, the very fact that a motherfucker can fight for this country, come back and still not be considered a full citizen, still not be a full person, still not, like, ah, this ain't even their war. We're, but, hmm. um... So yeah, so I'll, I'll run that back. Black veterans pushed to have their civil rights enforced, believing that they had earned full citizenship by military service. 
So what had become known as the Red Summer of 1919, industrial cities across the Midwest and Northeast experienced severe race riots, which mm, I'll say that because that's what's listed, but yeah, Um, in which whites, including local authorities, attacked black communities. Um, Because I feel like, for me, saying race riot feels as if there is, and I could be wrong, and if you disagree, that's fine, please let me know, but it it sounds and it feels like you're saying, I guess both sides are, are, starting the um the riots like both sides are equal parts in these events and that's just not the case that's the way it feels to me when you say race riots so again if you if you feel differently or you have like a better explanation as to why it's listed as that then sure um but i i I don't, that's the way I see it. Now, in Chicago and some other cities, blacks defended themselves for the first time with force, but were often outnumbered. Now, Tulsa, as a booming oil city, also supported a large number of affluent, educated, and professional African-American people. Greenwood. Greenwood was a district in Tulsa, which was organized in 1906, following Booker T. Washington's 1905 tour of Arkansas, Indian Territory, and Oklahoma. It was a namesake of the Greenwood District that Washington had established as his own demonstration in Tuskegee, Alabama, five years earlier. Now, Greenwood became so prosperous that it came to be known as the Negro Wall Street, now referred to as the Black Wall Street. Now, most black people lived together in the district. Black Americans had created their own businesses and services in this enclave, including several grocers, Newspaper, two newspapers, two movie theaters, nightclubs, and numerous churches. Can you freaking imagine? Can you imagine? And I'm not talking about just like a black neighborhood in which a lot of black people live, but a neighborhood, a community, 40 plus block, well, 40 blocks long, but 40 blocks long with your own grocery stores, doctors, barbershops, nightclubs, movie theaters. Like you, there is no reason to. Oh, oh, man, can you imagine? Now, black professionals, including, get this, doctors, lawyers, dentists, and clergy. Like, I'm not the religious type, but even that. To be able to wake up, go to school, go to the grocery store coming back from school, go to the dentist when you need whatever, go get a checkup at the doctor, go to the movie theater with your family, grow up in this area, and go to nightclubs in that area, that's all you. That's all yours. That's oh my god, and then go to church too. Like you are in. You don't have to go far to be surrounded by the excellence of your own space. Oh my god, man. So now they all serve their own peers: the clergymen, doctors, lawyers, dentists, and whatnot. Now during his trip to Tulsa in 1905, Washington encouraged the cooperation, economic independence, and excellence being demonstrated there. Greenwood residents selected their own leaders and raised capital there to support economic growth. In the surrounding areas of northeastern Oklahoma, they also enjoyed relatively prosperous and participated in the oil boom. So that's a little background on, uh, on, on Tulsa. On this. So that sets the scene for 
this sort of utopia and for those of you who are listening and you're into things like x-men and dc comics and whatnot like can you not see how look at freaking krakoa you know look at that for those of you who are current on your x-men um reading or even have been around for the last year and a half you know what kind of a space that is for these fictional folks in these Marvel comics. Like, can you imagine? My God. So that's the background there. Um, so with going through some of the documentaries and videos, there is an event that kind of sparked the, the Tulsa race massacre. And it was, it was something that felt very akin to so many situations that are even oh my God. okay so i'll just get into it so um there were two kids there was uh dick roland a 19 year old black guy a shoe shiner and there is what's the girl's name sarah page who i believe is a 17 year old white girl she was an elevator operator so there are a few different accounts so the one that has been kind of at the forefront was that Dick Rowland, a 19-year-old shoeshiner, was employed at a shoeshine parlor, um, I believe Main Street, in a area that serviced mainly whites. So I, I'm, I'm sure it was listed, but I, I don't either recall or I can't or I don't remember hearing if this area, like I know it wasn't in Greenwood, but I don't know like how far out that was and why he was working there. I don't know if those details um, have been released or even explored, but he was a shoe shiner at a um, parlor that serviced mainly whites. And the story has it that he, of course, couldn't use the restroom in that space, but the guy who owned the parlor, I believe, worked out a either a situation or whatever with a building that was like a few blocks down the road where blacks or colored people who worked for him could go down the block to that particular building and go on the fourth floor i remember that being like driven home in every single thing i watched and use the colored restroom there and so with dick Rowland having to use the bathroom <laughs> he went to that particular building got on the elevator and sarah was the young white elevator operator now what is said to have happened is he got in the elevator she was operating it something happened she screamed he ran out a few accounts say that more than likely with the elevator being oh you know it's old it's not <laughs> it's not this new fresh thing and, and when i say this um when i say this elevator i want you to also uh and i'm going to reference this probably a lot through this episode lovecraft country the elevator that was in uh letty's house letty's home for those of you who may not be familiar it's like one of those type of elevators um and so one thing is thought that maybe it jerked a bit and maybe he fell against her, brushed against her, stepped on her foot and she screamed and he ran out. Um, maybe he, you know, whatever. That's what is kind of most common in um, in a lot of the different interactions or the different uh, media that I consume. Now, 
with that in mind, keep this in mind, a young black boy and a young black girl in the elevator together. And let's even say he attacked her. If that is the case, then why didn't Sarah follow through with the prosecution? Why didn't she help them with getting this man, you know, into jail for his crimes? And I say it this way because the other uh, idea is that Sarah and Dick were in a relationship. Some uh, folks say that, oh, they were they were caught kissing and maybe she screamed and he ran. Um, another says that Sarah came back saying that, no, like we're in love, we're engaged, we're going to get married. Um, I'm not prosecuting him, I'm not, you know. So whatever, wherever you fall on what could have happened, the fact of the matter remains that the race massacre is not a is not justified because of something that happened in that elevator, be it a interracial forbidden love or him bumping against her or whatever. Like that's not, it's not justified by that. Um, moving past, moving past that event, I want to say Dick was arrested. Now there is his cousin, and I forget her name, and she's in the uh, Tulsa, the, the, um, I'm sorry, guys, this is really, I'm trying my best. The out, let me take a moment and say, like, this, going through, just reading the words about this event, and also watching a woman who is 107 years old, who was seven at the time of the race massacre, and taking in all of these different events, this is not been an easy read for me this has not been an easy watch for me um i'm honestly tired i i am tired i'm like emotionally drained just going through the facts of this situation and so forgive me if this episode is not polished if there are because i just it is a lot it is a lot it is a lot it took it's a lot. Um, and that's, I mean, that's all I got for you with that. Just like, bear with me. But I, I don't know. Just hearing some of these stories about people who have been lucky enough, and lucky, I'm using that loosely, but lucky enough to have survived generations and, and knowing that forever, this has been like swept under the rug, not talked about, not discussed to the point where I am a black man at my big grown age. And it took me growing up and becoming an adult before this was even mentioned. It's just, um, it's, it's, I don't know. So, um, yeah, anyways, so we go through, uh, they say maybe he grabbed the arm of Sarah. She screamed or whatnot. Um, the 2001 Oklahoma Commission final report notes that it was unusual for both Roland and Page to be working downtown on Memorial Day when most stores and businesses were closed, but also had speculated that Roland was there because of the Shine Parlor, and he worked that may have been open to draw in some traffic from the parade, while Page had been required to work in order to transport uh, Drexel Building employees and their families to choice parade viewing spots on the building's upper floors. And I'm sorry, this it was um, titled the Drexel Building where the coloreds could go and use the bathroom. Now, although the police questioned Paige, 
No account of her statement has been found. Apparently, she told the police that Roland had grabbed her arm and nothing more, and she would not press charges. And again, I said, like, whatever. Um, the police determined that what happened between the two teenagers was something less than assault. The authorities conducted a low-key investigation rather than launching a manhunt for her alleged assailant. Now, that's, again, this happened. So, regardless of what happened, uh, he went into the Drexel building. She was on the elevator. Something happened. The authorities came out, and they ruled this is less than assault. And, like, this is a white girl in 1921. So, like, don't act as if they wouldn't have brought down the full might of Thor on this black boy's head for this white woman. So, again, I said, like, it, whatever. Now... Regardless to whatever happened, uh, Roland had to be had reason to be fearful because, of course, you like you're a black boy in whatever. So he had reason to be fearful. Um, any accusations like that could nearly could put you in the grave, could have you hanging from a tree. So realizing the gravity of the situation, Roland fled to his mother's house in a Greenwood neighborhood. Now, Tuesday, May thirty first. Everything that I found said that after this low-key investigation and Sarah being like, no, you know, I'm good, this happened, he's fine, all of this would have died down and been done until this newspaper released the very next day, <laughs> like, what? This um, front page, nab Negro for attacking girl in an elevator. That's the headline. A Negro delivery boy who gave his name to the police says Diamond Dick, but who has been identified as Dick Rowland, was arrested on South Greenwood Avenue this morning by officers Carmichael and and Peck, charged with attempting an assault on a 17-year-old white elevator girl, the Drexel building, earlier yesterday. He will be tried in in municipal court, excuse me, this afternoon on a state charge. The girl says she noticed a Negro a few minutes before the attempted assault, looking up and down in the hallway on the third floor of the Drexel building as if to see was there anyone in sight, but thought nothing of it at the time. Uh, Just, okay. So, Henry Carmichael, a white detective, and Henry C. Peck, a black patrolman, located Roland on Greenwood Avenue, detained him. Peck was one of the two black officers on the city's police force, which included about 45 officers. Now, Roland was initially taken to the Tulsa City Jail at the corner of 1st Street and Main Street later that day. Police Commissioner J.M. Atkinson said he had received an anonymous telephone call threatening Roland's life. He ordered that Roland be transferred to a more secure jail on the top floor of the Tulsa County Courthouse. Now, Dick Rowland was well-known among attorneys and other legal professionals within the city, many of whom knew him through his work as a shoeshiner. Now, some witnesses later recounted hearing several attorneys defend Rowland in their conversations with one another. One of them said, Well, I know that boy and have known him a good while. That's not him. Uh, For the newspaper coverage, it was the Tulsa Tribune that was edited by a Richard Lloyd Banks and one of two white-owned papers published in Tulsa broke the story that afternoon in that afternoon's edition with the headline, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator. Now, this described the alleged incident, according to some witnesses. The same edition of the Tribune included an editorial warning of a potential lynching, lynching of Dick, entitled 
to lynch Negro tonight. The paper was known at the time to have a sensational, oh Lord, sensationalist style of news writing. All original copies of the issue of the paper have been apparently destroyed, and the relevant page is missing from the microfilm copy. Which, like, again, how is that, if everything is on the up and up and it's also innocent, how is that one specific thing gone? Like, for the micro, come on, y'all. Uh, the Tulsa race, I'll say it because it's said here, but it's a massacre. The Tulsa Race Riot Commission in 1997 offered a reward for a copy of the editorial, which went unclaimed, because, of course, who's going to give you that? Other newspapers of the time, like the Black Dispatch and the Tulsa World, did not call attention to any such editorial after the event. So the exact content of the column, and whether it existed at all, remains in dispute. Um, however, Chief of Detective James Patton attributed the cause of the riots entirely to the newspaper account and stated, if the facts in the story as told by the police had only been printed, I do not think there would have been any riots whatsoever. And that's been the consistency on every single program that I've consumed is that had this event, this little um, incident with uh, Dick and Sarah have happened as it was and that was it, regardless to what happened in the elevator, if, if it had have happened, police did the low investigation, Sarah said, no, nah, I'm good. It's not a big deal. That would have been it. But publishing in this sensationalized, it's like, oh my God, how do you, I mean, I get how you do because it's 1921, but God damn, how do you, how do you hate people so much that you spend all of this? Okay, so the standoff at the courthouse, this was kind of the, where Dick and Sarah was the inciting incident, I think the well no no i would say the newspaper reporting was like the inciting incident because that's what you know got people incited and things happening so um the afternoon edition of the tribune hit the streets shortly after 3 p.m as soon news spread of the potential lynching by 4 p.m local authorities were on high alert white residents began congregating at and near the tulsa county courthouse by sunset around 7:30 p.m the several hundred white residents assembled outside the courthouse appeared to have the makings of a lynch mob, which, of course, duh. Uh, William M. McCullough, the newly elected sheriff of Tulsa County, was determined to avoid events like the 1920 lynching of white murder suspect Roy Belton in Tulsa, which had occurred during the term of his predecessor. The sheriff took steps to ensure the safety of Roland. McCullough organized his deputies into a defensive formation around Roland, who was terrified, which, of course, he was. The Guthrie Daily Leader reported that Roland had been taken to the court, to the county jail before crowds started to gather. The sheriff positioned six of his men, armed with rifles and shotguns, on the roof of the courthouse. He disabled the building's elevator and had his remaining men barricade themselves at the top of the stairs with orders to shoot any intruders on sight. The sheriff went outside and tried to talk to the crowd into going back home, but they was like, fuck that. According to an account by Scott Ellsworth, the sheriff was hooted down, which I imagine that just means heckled, but I've never heard that term hooted down, at about 8.20 p.m. Three white men entered the courthouse demanding that Roland be turned over to them, which is like, okay, let's, you all are, I don't know, fixtures in this white space. You have this set of laws and courthouse and whatnot that's like to uphold this 
white supremacy and like you trust them for everything else but now you want to take this punishment into your own hands it's like you created this system to begin with and now you don't even want to work within the confines of that system like already black folks kind of like serve on juries and shit and you really are going to i don't okay now, um, although outnumbered by the growing crowd on the street, Sheriff McCullough turned uh, the men away. Like, no, nah, of course, I'm not handing you over this black boy for you to lynch. It's clear what you want to do. Now, a few blocks away on Greenwood Avenue, members of the black community had gathered to discuss uh, the situation at Gurley's Hotel. Given the recent, the recent lynching of Belton, a white man accused of murder, they believed that Roland was greatly at risk. Many black residents were determined to prevent the crowd from lynching Roland, but they were divided about how to go about doing that. Um, another fictional show that I think uh, that comes to mind right away with like this piece of history is Umbrella Academy. Um, the meetings in the barbershops and the uh, hair salons where black folks would congregate to have these after-hours meetings, you know, in secret. And there is, I don't, can't recall which episode, I know there were a few, um, there were a few with uh, black folks meeting in this space <clears throat> to discuss how to handle these situations signature to black folks. Uh, now, young World War One veterans prepared for battle by collecting guns and ammunition. Older, more prosperous men feared a destructive confrontation that would likely cost them a lot. Uh, O.W. Gurley stated that he tried to convince the men that there would be no lynching, but the crowd responded that Sheriff McCullough had personally told them their presence was required. Now, about 9.30 p.m., a group of approximately 50 to about 60, 65 black men armed with rifles and shotguns arrived at the jail to support the sheriff and his deputies in defending Roland from the mob. Uh, corroborated by 10 witnesses, attorney James Luther submitted to the grand jury that they were following the orders of the sheriff McCullough, who publicly denied he gave any orders, which, oh man. <clears throat> okay, and this is a, a piece of his um, statement. This is Sheriff McCullough. I saw a car full of Negroes driving through the streets with guns. I saw Bill McCullough. Oh, no, I'm wrong. This is a witness. I'm sorry. I saw a car full of Negroes driving through the streets with guns. I saw Bill McCullough and told him those Negroes would cause trouble. McCullough tried to talk to them, and they got out and stood in single file. W.G. Daggs was killer near Boulder and 6th Street. I was under the impression that that man with authority could have stopped and disarmed them. I saw the chief of police on south side of court house on top of steps talking. I did not see any officer except the chief. I walked in the courthouse and met McCullough about 15 feet of his door. I told him these Negroes were going to make trouble, and he said he had told them to go home. He went out and told the whites to go home, and once said, they said you told them to come up here. McCullough said, I did not. And a Negro said, you did tell us to come. So that's a, a witness's account. Um... So going into taking up arms. Now, having seen the armed black men, some of the more than 1,000 whites who had been at the courthouse went home and got their own guns. Others headed to the National Guard Armory at the corner of 6th Street and Norfolk Avenue where they planned to arm themselves. The armory contained a supply of small arms and ammunition. Major James Bell of the 108th Infantry Regiment learned of the 
excuse me, learned of the mounting tensions downtown and the possibility of a break-in, and he took measures to prevent it. He called the commanders of three National Guard units in Tulsa, who ordered all the Guard members to put on their uniforms and quickly report to the armory. When a group of whites arrived and began pulling at the grating over the window, Bell went outside to confront the crowd of about 400 men. Bell told them that the Guard members were inside, they were armed and prepared to shoot anyone who tried to enter. After this, in this show of force, the crowd withdrew from the armory. Now, at the courthouse, the crowd has swollen to nearly 2,000 or so, uh, many of them armed. Several local leaders, including Reverend Charles W. Kerr, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, tried to uh, dissuade the mob. And the chief of police, John A. Gustafson, I believe, Gustafson, excuse me, later claimed that he tried to talk to the crowd and have them go home. Like, hmm. So... You can just, oh my God, I can see all of this playing out in my head. Like this is, oh my God, this is so unfortunate. And a lot of these retellings, like it's one thing to read the words on the page. It's another thing to hear people speaking about this event who were there. Even if it was a five or six year old kid. Like, this is a traumatic event that you do not forget. You did, oh, man, this is, oh, okay. Okay, y'all. So, um, anxiety on Greenwood Avenue was rising, of course. Many black residents worried about the safety of Roland. Small groups of armed black men ventured toward the courthouse and cars, uh, partly for reconnaissance and to demonstrate that they were prepared to take the necessary acts to protect Roland if need be. Now, many white men interpreted these actions as a Negro uprising and became concerned, like, concerned, whatever. Eyewitnesses reports the gunshots presumably fired into the air, increasing frequency during the evening. Now, it's like, you can go to the courthouse and demand to have Roland turned over to you, but these uppity Negroes go to the courthouse to try to i guess uphold this law that y'all have already set in place which is why this boy is going through the justice system like he you you don't even want to so anyways uh in greenwood rumors begin to fly a report that whites were storming the courthouse shortly after 10 p.m a second larger group of approximately 75 armed black men decided to go into the courthouse as well they offered their support to the sheriff who declined their help according to a witness a white man is alleged to have told one of the armed black men to surrender his pistol the man refused and a shot was fired now that's something that has been oh my god yeah that was kind of like the inciting incident that this white man was upset that this black man had this pistol or rifle or whatever tried to take it from him and here we are um it was it started the well not started it was one of the events that contributed to the start of this massacre now the gunshots triggered an almost immediate response both sides firing on each other the first quote-unquote battle was said to last a few seconds or so but took out it took a toll uh 10 whites and two blacks uh lay dead in the in the street so these were men of course uh the black men who offered to provide security retreated towards greenwood a rolling gunfight ensued the armed white mob pursued the black contingent toward the greenwood with many stopping to loot local stores for additional weapons and ammunition along the way uh, bystanders, many of whom were leaving like movie theaters and clubs and stuff, were shot, caught off guard by the mobs that fled. 
Panic set in as white mobs began firing on any black people in the crowd. The white mob also shot and killed at least one white man in the confusion. According to the Oklahoma Historical Society, some in the mob were deputized by police and instructed to get a gun and get a nigger. Like, again, if you're... So it's one thing to have the two documentaries that, you know, I've, I've listed that in the show notes and hear the 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 accounts of the events by people who were alive at that time. And again, with the understanding that Lovecraft Country is a fictional TV show, that event in particular being expressed in that show, like, oh, I just, I think... I think that that is a good piece to consume because though it's cinematic and it's fictional in a sense that it's a fictional show, the events themselves are the events that happen. Uh, Misha Green and company taking in accounts of the Tulsa Race Massacre and incorporating them into that series. Feel how you feel about it. That was a lot of people's first time even hearing about the Tulsa Race Massacre. So I do think that, because when I, when I go through this information, what comes to mind is Letty in the house, um, all the confusion from downtown. What, like, it's it's cinematic to a point where I'm playing it over in my head, and I'm also referencing that episode. If there is a specific episode of Watchmen that discusses and, sh- and like, recounts the um, Tulsa race massacre outside of the first episode because i did watch the first one i think i'm on episode three but i watched the first one and that was like oh my god seeing those back to back it's it's a lot so okay so um so all of this is going on people retreating to greenwood black folks being shot one white man getting shot in confusion uh get a gun and get a nigger Around 11 p.m., members of the National Guard unit began to assemble at the armory to organize a plan to subdue the rioters. And when we say rioters, please know that we're talking about the white mob. This is not black folks rioting. This is black people defending themselves. And most black people just getting shot randomly by surprise. Um, Several groups were deployed downtown to set up guard at the courthouse, the police station, and other public facilities. Now, members of the local chapter of the American Legion joined in on patrols of the streets. The forces appeared to have been deployed to protect the white districts adjacent to Greenwood. The National Guard rounded up numerous black people and took them to convention halls on Brady Street for detention. And it's like decreasing the numbers. Like doing that gets a lot of black people off the playing field to protect and defend their space their home now around midnight a small crowd of whites assembled outside the courthouse they shouted in uh, support of a lynching but they did not rush the building and nothing happened now every account that i've uh, consumed or retelling about this event has been just as horrific and painful and hard to watch as the next but Imagine going to that. No, imagine that utopia that I spoke about before, explaining Tulsa and how it's laid out in the Greenwood 40 blocks. And imagine going to a movie theater, watching a movie with your best gal, your best guy, or whatever they say back then, walking out to gunfire from an angry white mob. Like, oh my god, I just. 
<sighs> so throughout the on June first, throughout the early morning hours, groups of armed white and black people squared off in gunfight. The fighting was concentrated along sections of the Frisco tracks, a dividing line between black and white commercial districts. Now there was an account of a woman nine years old running along these tracks with her family where the white mob attacked the black civilians even those who did not have guns and were firing back and it was said that they went into a lot of businesses and homes and like destroyed so many things and it's things that could have been passed down to later generations from businesses to possessions to money so many things that has like halted the the success of like that's four generations man a hundred years is about four generations can you imagine what the descendants of tulsa oklahoma greenwood neighborhood would be now in this year 2021 a hundred years later that little girl at nine years old who ran away from her parents while everyone was being pretty much cattled um across these train tracks where would she have been like the there's her um her granddaughter and the, her granddaughter's son and his daughter are interviewed in uh in the NBC documentary and like seeing them of course they're alive and well um, but the, the, the daughter asks, like, why did you never discuss this? And she's like, well, I didn't discuss it because I wanted you to have a chance at living. And then with her holding her son, a baby at the time, it's like, I wanted him to have a chance as well. Because throughout all of this, this, this massacre, this horrific ass event, the fallout was devastating for blacks alone white people no one was brought up on charges no one was sentenced to jail no one there was no repercussions for white folks and as a black person if you spoke about it then you were the one who got the consequences you were the one who uh had to face um at one had to fear that this could happen again but also have to face the bull that came from these white residents who one is to act as if this was something that never happened. Like you burned down and killed this entire neighborhood. And yet, um, okay. so a rumor circulated that more black people were coming by train from Muskogee to help with an invasion of Tulsa. At one point, a passenger on an incoming train were forced to take cover on the floor of the train cars as they had arrived in the midst of this crossfire. And with the train taking hits on both sides, small group of whites made brief forays by car into Greenwood. Firing into businesses and residents just at random, just... They received return gunfire, you know, oftentimes. Meanwhile, the white riders threw lighted oil rags into several buildings along Archer Street, igniting them. So these are, again, doctor's offices, lawyers' practices, um, theaters, grocery stores, um, homes, like, hmm. an unrest 
spread to other parts of the city. Many middle-class white families who employ black people in their homes as like living cooks and servants were accosted by white rioters. They demanded the families turn over their employees and be taken to detention centers around the city. Many white families complied, but those who refused were subjected to attacks and vandalism in return. Which is like, damn, you, again, you just going to work with this waspy-ass white family, just cooking for them, caring for their kids, cleaning their house, and you just doing your day's work. And now, because some motherfuckers is mad and want to go against this justice system that they've put in place, now you got to be murdered. Bruh. So around 1 p.m., or I'm sorry, 1 a.m., the white mob began setting fires um, using businesses and commercial um, commercial businesses on Archer Street at the south, southern edge of the Greenwood District. Uh, news traveled among Greenwood residents in an early morning hours. Many began to take up arms to defend their neighborhood, as you do, while others began a mass exodus from the city. Now, with the exodus, I want to um, take a quick aside here. There is There are so many accounts of people fleeing and this is something that you see in um watchmen where people are just up and leaving and of course because that's you know you're trying to tell a story and why i say it's good to consume things like cinematic retellings of the event but also get into the nitty-gritty for lack of a better word of what happened is because in watchmen uh we start off with the black folks getting away, a family get away, um, and they ride out the city. And then they focus on a black boy, and then the story begins. And there is a, re- a retelling, not a retelling, there is a, uh, man, I want to say this was shot in 1999, because there are several people who talk about what happened that night. Uh, and they And he says that, my he was with his grandfather and his grandmother and they were leaving town they were trying to leave town were pulled over by a white man and when the white man asked like what are you doing he's like well you know we're just trying to get out of here and he said something to the effect of yeah you are trying to get out of here and shot this man's grandparents in the head like right there in his face and so where a lot of people were trying to leave it was like no you you don't get to leave. Like, you are stuck here. You thriving, being this uppity black does not protect you from, like, you can't even leave. There is a a mob out here killing my people and I can't flee to go to another place that's safe because y'all won't let me. You are killing people who are in their cars trying to, it's like, God damn, when is enough enough? So, yeah, so this mass exodus that happened, I'm, some got away, others didn't. And it's, it's, yeah, it's shitty. Um, mm, I don't know. So Tulsa founder and Ku Klux Klan member W. Tate Brady participated in the riots as a night watchman. The Lamb Press reported that uh, previously Brady led the Tulsa out, out, excuse me, outrage, the November 7, 1917 tarring and feathering of members of the industrial workers of the world, an incident understood to be economically and politically rather than racially motivated, which, okay, girl, tarred and feathered, sure. Uh, 
And that's not racially motivated. Okay. Uh, previous reports regarding Brady's character seem favorable, and he hired black employees in his business. Girl, okay. I got a black friend. And just because you employ black people don't mean you give a fuck about them. Like, work is work. And are you even paying them the same wage as you paying your the white counterparts? Who cares? <sighs> so, daybreak. Um, about sunrise at 5, p- 5 a.m., a train whistle sounded... Some writers believe this sound to be a signal for the writers to launch an all-out assault on Greenwood. A white man stepped from out behind uh, the Frisco Depot and was fatally shot by a sniper in Greenwood. Crowds of riders poured from their shelters on foot and by car into the streets in the black neighborhood. Five white men in a car led charge but were killed by a uh, gunfire before they had traveled one block, which, all right. Uh, overwhelmed by the sheer number of white attackers, the black residents retreated north on Greenwood Avenue to the edge of town. Chaos ensued as terrified residents fled. The rioters shot indiscriminately and killed many black residents along the way. Splitting into even smaller groups, they began breaking into houses and buildings, looting. Several residents later testified that the rioters broke into occupied homes and ordered the residents out into the street where they could be taken to detention centers or killed um, a rumor spread among the writers that the new mount zion baptist church was being used as a fortress and armory 20 caskets full of rifles have been delivered to the church though no evidence was found that this is true now as if all of this wasn't terrible enough then we get attacks by air <sighs> numerous eyewitnesses described airplanes carrying white assay mm, 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 mm. Whites who fired rifles and dropped firebombs on buildings, homes, and fleeing families, the privately owned aircraft have been dispatched from the nearby Curtis Southfield, South, I'm sorry, Curtis Southwest Field outside Tulsa. Now, law enforcement officials later said that the planes were to provide reconnaissance and protect against a Negro uprising. Law enforcement personnel were thought to be aboard at least some of these flights, which, like, who else would they, like, yeah, they would have to be. Eyewitness accounts, um, such as the testimony from the survivors during the commission hearing, and a manuscript by eyewitnesses and attorney Buck Colbert, or Colbert, Colbert, Franklin, discovered in 2015, said that on the morning of June 1st, at least a dozen or more planes circled the neighborhood and dropped burning turpentine balls on an office building, a hotel, a filing station, and multiple other buildings. Men also fired rifles at black residents, gunning them down in the street. Which is, one of the um, persons interviewed in the documentary said, 9-11 was not the first attack on American soil. This was the first attack by airplane on American soil. This is the first terror attack on Americans, from Americans. And it's, it's like, at what point... Do you, like, how is this, I, the amount of hell that black people had, no, not had, that black people endured just existing in this country, and to see me at my big age, Folks, my peers who are about my age, who also have children, and to see 
and not even necessarily, you know, from Tulsa residents, Tulsa descendants, but people who are now in 2021 who have kids, be it a five-year-old or an 18-year-old or whatever, all of the shit that that has been inflicted, that black people have gone through from the time that we were forced onto this damn country and seeing that some of us have have made it. like i just like looking at this documentary seeing the granddaughter of the 9-year-old girl and then seeing her son who i believe is about probably my generation he looks like he's about 27 31 or whatnot and then his daughter who is five years old it's like out of all of this can you imagine how many like had this shit not have happened how many people would have just gone on and thrived how many people would have just gone on and had families how many people have you killed and then how many people have you just stopped from ever existing and i say it that way because, of course, there are black people that were murdered. But there's also, with those black people you murdered, the possibility of what their lineage would have been. Like, how many kids, how big could their, I don't know, man. Like, you you see, you read about and you hear the accounts of people from these events. And folks still act as if a motherfucker is doing a Black Lives Matter protest or advocating for their rights or just asking to not be murdered. And it's like, oh, you know, what more do you want? Like, what what are you doing? Like, the police are here to protect us and we're doing X, Y, and Z and you're just in the way and stop doing this and stop doing that. It's like, can you honestly look back at anything that's happened in American history and say that these people, these people, black folks, are lying that these people black people are blowing shit out of proportion like this this was a hundred years ago this is four generations between 1921 and 2021 there's been so much shit going on just as recently as the george floyd and the brianna taylor incidents like there is so much there's always something all the time and yet it's still like i'm gonna kick it to you this way i don't know how in the fuck people can read about x-men and mutants and the persecution that these fictional ass people endure issue in and issue out arc in and arc out trade paperback i'm gonna buy in and out and then act as if real life people are just talking out the side of their ass or real life people are like you excited that oh the x-men and band together they got x-men blue green red and orange and they're fighting back oh that's so good you know because people hate mutants but black folks do a quarter of the same thing or at the not even that just fucking congregate and protest and then it's like oh what the fuck are you doing well girl you like how do you not so richard s warner concluded in his submission to the oklahoma commission that contrary to later reports by claimed eyewitness of seeing explosions, there was no reliable evidence to support such attacks. Well, girl, did these buildings just spontaneously combust? Warner noted that while a number of newspapers targeted at black readers heavily reported the use of uh, nitroglycerin, turpentine, and rifles from planes, many cited anonymous sources or secondhand accounts. 
Uh, Beryl Ford, one of the preeminent historians of the disaster, concluded from his large collection of photographs that there was no evidence any buildings damaged by explosions. Danny, uh, or Danny Gobble, Gobble, um, commended Warner on his efforts in supporting his conclusions. State Representative Don Ross, born in Tulsa in 1941, however, dissented that from evidence presented in the report, concluding bombs were in fact dropped from planes during the violence. Which is like, I can't take anything you say seriously if you're going to say, oh no, no bombs were dropped. Mm, okay. But we're still acting as if this event didn't happen. Or it's not. Like, okay, no bombs were dropped. Then what the fuck happens in these buildings? What What's up with these planes? Why do you have access to... Um, Franklin account. In 2015, a previously unknown written eyewitness account of the events of May 31st, 2021 was discovered and subsequently obtained by the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. The 10-page typewritten letter was... Excuse me, authored by Buck Colbert Franklin, uh, noted Oklahoma attorney and father of John Hope Franklin. Uh, there's a few quotes here. Let's see. Okay. Lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. Smoke ascended in the sky in thick black volumes and emitted all the planes. Now a dozen or more in number still hummed and darted here and there with the agility of natural birds in the air. Planes circling in midair, they grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling atop, excuse me, falling upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top, and then another and another and another building began to burn from their top. The sidewalks were littered, covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught fire from the top. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where or where is our splendid fire department with its half-dozen stations, I asked myself. Is the city in conspiracy with the mob? Franklin states that every time he saw a white man shot, he felt happy, and he swelled with pride and hope for the race. Franklin reports seeing multiple machine guns firing at night and hearing thousands and thousands of guns being fired simultaneously from all directions. He states that he was arrested by a thousand boys. It seemed firing their guns every step they took. The arrival of the National Guard. Adjunct General Charles Barrett of Oklahoma National Guard arrived by special train at about 9.15 a.m. with 109 troops from Oklahoma City. Ordered in by the governor, he could not legally act until he had contacted all the appropriate local authorities, including Mayor T.D. Evans. The sheriff and the police chief, meanwhile, his troops paused to eat breakfast, like, as you do. Um, Barrett summoned reinforcements from several other Oklahoma cities. Barrett declared martial law at 11.49 a.m. And by noon, the troops had managed to suppress most of the remaining violence. Thousands of black residents had fled the city. Another 4,000 people had been rounded up and detained at various centers. Under martial law, the detainees were required to carry identification cards. As many as 6,000 black Greenwood residents were interned at three local facilities. Convention Hall, now known as the Tulsa Theater, 
the Tulsa County Fairground, Fairground, excuse me, then located about a mile northeast of Greenwood back then, and McNulty Park, a baseball stadium at 10th Street and Elgin Avenue. A 1921 letter from an officer of the Service Company 3rd Infantry, Oklahoma National Guard, who arrived on May 31st of 1921, reported numerous events related to the suppression of the riot. <clears throat> taking about 30 to 40 black residents into custody, putting a machine gun on a truck and taking it to patrol, although it was not functioning and much less useful than an ordinary rifle, being fired on from black snipers from the church and returning fire, being fired on by white men, turning the prisoners over to deputies to take them to the police headquarters, being fired upon again uh, by black, black armed residents and having two NCOs slightly wounded, searching for black snipers and firearms, detailing an NCO to take 170 black residents to the civil authorities and delivering an additional 150 black residents to the convention hall. Captain John W. McCune reported that stockpiled ammunition with the burning structures began to explode, which might have further contributed to the casualties. Martial law was withdrawn on June 4th under field order number seven. Bruh. The aftermath, um, man, the aftermath. The massacre was covered by national newspapers, and the reported number of deaths wide, excuse me, varies widely. Excuse me. On June first, nineteen twenty-one, the Tulsa Tribune reported that nine white people and sixty-eight black people had died in the riot. When they say riot. But shortly afterwards, it changed its number to a total of 176 dead. The next day, the same paper reported the count as nine white people and 21 black people. The Los Angeles Express headline said 175 killed, many wounded. The New York Times said that 77 people had been killed, including 68 black people. But it later lowered the total to 33. I wonder why. The Richmond Times Dispatch of Virginia reported that 85 people, including 25 white people, were killed. It also reported that the police chief had reported to Governor Robertson that the total was 75 and that the police major uh, put the figure at 175. So all that being said, the numbers were fluctuating all over the place. And I don't give a damn if it was 33 black people or 400 black people. The very fact remains that this is an event that should not have happened. You've displaced all these damn people. You've made all these folks homeless. You've round up all these people. You And like... The videos that I watched show that the Greenwood area rebuilt almost better than ever, but still being harassed for being this black utopian space where rents were raised. Um, well, that was a more recent thing. Um, there's an account of a lady. Her name is Terry, I believe. And it's, it's in the documentary listed where she owned a salon in Greenwood where it used to be 40 blocks. It was regulated to like one or two. And there were so many black businesses that were moving out. And when she talked to the people, it's like they kept raising the rent, you know, they would raise it sometimes double it, sometimes triple it. And she held off for as long as she could. And the emotional freaking telling of what happened. She's like, I just knew I was going to win my case because they were wrong. I had stacks and stacks of paperwork. And yet and the, at the end of the day, I was pushed out as well. And she was like one of the last people from Greenwood pushed out to another area. That's, oh, my God. So 
all in all, because I don't, I'm, I'm still not really able to wrap my mind around all of this. Um, like, I understand what happened, I'm seeing what happened, but it's like, for this to be such a major event, and it to not be spoken about, I'm hoping that it is now. If you have children who are in school now, maybe middle school, high school, and the Tulsa Race Riots, I'm sorry, Tulsa Race Massacre is something that is taught, please let me know. Uh, tweet me or email me uh, and let me know. Because it's like, I, the history books are written by the winners of the wars, by the winners of history. That's why you have the slave trade being regulated to slaves being um, in happy servants and their conditions, their living conditions not being that bad. And, you know, it was not slavery. They just were unpaid workers. Like, so you get bullshit like that. And learning about this as an adult really pains me. But at the same time, all of the accounts from people who were uh, around during that time or their descendants were like, we could not discuss this. This is not something that we could talk about. Talking about this is was a recipe for disaster. It was something that would hurt you more than anything. So it's like our stories constantly being suppressed, constantly being gaslit, constantly being tortured and terrorized to the point where and and used and sucked dry if you look at anything from the Tulsa race massacre to even something as which may seem trivial but like black creators online seeing how everything about them is just taken in and remixed and sometimes straight up plagiarized and yet there is no there is no I'm just tired, y'all. I'm just tired. And this, if you made it this far, thank you. Thanks for listening. I am, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. This is, um, there's a museum they mention in the documentary about um, the Tulsa race massacre that's being built. And I'm not sure if it's like completed now, but in the documentary was being built. And there's a, an older man who's talking like, yeah, this is fine. Museum is cool. You know, get the story out, but what story are you going to tell? And I'm with him like, where are the reparations for these Tulsa residents and their descendants for the bullshit that this city did to them, how they were left without protection. And then to construct a museum, that's all fine and good, but like the funding or the, the, the revenue from this museum, where is it going? Is it going to this community? Is it going to these people? Is it like what? So I was just like, I hope that this doesn't become another box to check off as a white person to be like, oh, I'm woke. I know about the Tulsa race massacre. Like putting BLM in your profile and like going on about your day like that's enough. I don't know. Um, this has been the Tulsa race massacre. I'm 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 really not. I'm gonna say check the check the links in the show notes um if you have any insight any conversation anything that you know a bit more about uh this incident and even if it's just um not even necessarily the 
the Tulsa Race Massacre, but if it is like a tribute to maybe like the Watchmen or the Lovecraft Country episode, if you have any other documentaries that you've watched or you know of, um, any books even, please recommend those, and I'll be sure to like blast those on my social media, because I do want, I'm, I'm only going by the, the little bit that I've been able to get my hands on, so again, anything you have to add, I, I beg of you all, Email me, carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com, or tweet me, carefreeblurred, use the hashtag CBMPod, and, and talk to me, and talk to us, make this a conversation, more so than any other episode. Like this, I'm, I still have more to learn, and I would venture to say that there's at least one or two people that this is brand spanking new to them. Um, mm, I don't know. But thank you guys uh, for sticking with me through this. Next week will be um, different. <laughs> so, yeah, um, g- give me your information. Let me know what you think. Um, any comments, concerns, or whatnot, hit me up. I, of course, am Brain Coleman, the Carefree Blur, Carefree Black Nerd. And um, until next time, guys, stay carefree, stay nerdy, stay geeky, and stay learning about American history, black history, all parts, not just these shiny ones that they're able to you know, play office, you know, there's other shit that's happened. So thank you guys. And uh, I'll be checking you next time. First witness is Miss Viola Fletcher. Also known if I can mother Fletcher. Thank you. I don't have a mother. So thank you. Mother Fletcher is the oldest living survivor of the Tulsa race massacre. She was seven years old when she lived through the massacre. Mother Fletcher, you are now recognized to testify. My name is Viola Ford Fletcher. I'm the daughter of Lucinda Ellis and John Wesley Ford of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm the sister of Hughes Van Ellis, who is also here today. I'm a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Two weeks ago, I celebrated my 107th birthday. Today, I'm visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time in my life. I'm here seeking justice, and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921. On May 31st and 21, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood. Neighbors of Tulsa, the neighborhood I felt asleep in that night was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, community, heritage, and my family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me. Greenwood could, excuse me, yeah. Still, Greenwood should have given me the chance to make, truly make it in this country. Within a few hours, all of that was gone. The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seeing being shot, 
black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not, and other survivors do not, and our descendants do not. When my family was forced to leave Tulsa, I lost my chance of an education. I never finished school past the fourth grade. I have never made much money in my country. State and city took a lot from me. Despite this, I spent time supporting the war effort in the shipyards of California, but most of my life I was a domestic worker serving white families. I never made much money, but to this day I can barely afford my everyday needs. All the while the city of this Tulsa have unjustly used the names and stories of victims like me to enrich myself and its white allies through the 30s million, to through the 30s million ways by the Tulsa Centennial Commissioner while I was continued to live in poverty. I am 107 year old and have never been seen justice. I pray that one day I will. I have been blessed with a long life and have seen the best and the worst of this country. I think about the terror, horror inflicted upon black people in this country every day. This subcontinuity has the power to lead us down a better path. I'm asking that my country acknowledge what has been happened to me, the tremors and the pain, the loss, and I ask the survivors and descendants to be given the chance to speak, seek justice, open the door. All of you know how easy it is to deny that that a violent mob threatened your lives and took your property. For 70 years, the city of Tulsa and its stream of charmers told us that Damascus didn't happen, like we didn't see it with our own eyes. You have, <coughs> have me here right now. You see Mother Randall, you see my brother, Hughes Van Ellis. We live this history and we can't ignore it. It, it's our lives with us. Oh my goodness. We lost everything that day. Our homes, our churches, our newspapers, our theaters, our lives. Greenwood represented all the best of what was possible for black people in America and for all, for all the people. No one cared about us for almost 100 years. We and our history have been forgotten, washed away. This Congress must recognize us and our history. For black America, for the white Americans, and for all Americans, that's some justice. Yes, is that it? Thank you. Do you want to say anything else? <laughs> I thought it was another page. 
Do you want to say anything else? No, no, it's not. Thank you very much. We appreciate very much your testimony.